Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, verses, or chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. Give you a few moments if you want to follow along with me in your Bibles. For those of you who may not have one, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, or to one side of you, perhaps. Angel Gabriel seems to be a busy angel. He appeared to Daniel and he appears to the shepherds. So, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your plans for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an appointed one, anointed one, sorry, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put, on, uh, put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. One of the ways that I've been trying to summarize uh, chapters as we go along uh, in the titles is God's reign, and then I will add a subtitle to it. Last week, we could um, say that uh, we considered God's reign worked out through prayer. That as God's people pray, God accomplishes His will. Uh, it's a mystery how those two go together, but it's true. Uh, today, I think the focus could be God's reign revealed through prophecy. Um, one of the things that we learn about God which distinguishes God from every other um, so-called God is the fact that uh, only God, the God described in the Bible, the God that we love and serve, the God that we worship, knows the end from the beginning. 
and he can predict the future with exact accuracy. And so we see now that in the second part of um, this chapter that God's reign will be worked out through his prophetic word uh, to Daniel. Um, it's a complicated few verses that we're going to look at. And uh, I'm going to hesitate jumping to uh, verses 24 and 27. I do want to spend a, a, a bit of time working on verses 20 to 23. Uh, and it's not because I don't know what I'm going to say when we come to verses 24 to 27, but it's that I would rather talk about verses 20 to 23 first. Um, my hope is, as we look through these verses, to rather than try and untangle the incredible complexity that is contained in them, to give you instead a view of the forest. In other words, I want us to look at the forest rather than the trees. It's so easy to get lost as we consider this passage um, to focus on what one word might mean or one reference might be. And uh, as I do this this morning, I recognize that almost everything I'm going to say is not mine. It's a summary of um, my reading. It's a summary of what other people have said. It's a um, a compilation uh, of what they have uh, already gone ahead and reported that is helping me. So very little of it is fresh with me. So let's just dive in and consider uh, these verses this morning. The first section, verses 20 to 23, I just uh, titled it God's Answer in the Presence. And the first thing that I was struck with, and I, I think we ought to be struck with, is de this description of prayer of Daniel. It's, it's just, it, it just struck me as such a simple, beautiful, natural way to talk about prayer. He simply says, speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my petition before Yahweh my God concerning the holy mountain of my God while I was praying. It's just a wonderful summary of the way in which we communicate with God and the way that we talk with God. Even that word speaking which he starts off his description of prayer. It means to declare or to converse almost in a casual, informal kind of way. It's like I was speaking with Kathy the other day in our kitchen. Uh, just a very natural conversation back and forth with one another. You can see just a little bit farther down in verse 22 that uh, the angel Gabriel comes to him and he says, He made me understand, speaking with me. There's this casual um, uh, sort of way of describing a conversation between Daniel and God or Daniel and the angel. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, when was the last time that you characterized your praying with God as speaking to God? Or I was just speaking with God the other day in the morning as I got up and had my cup of coffee. Or I was speaking with God as I walked down the, the path the other day. It's just a beautiful description of how we communicate with God. And then there's the three other things that he references in his prayer. He says, praying. This is one of a dozen Hebrew words for prayer that we have in the Old Testament. And this is the most common one. It simply means to intervene. Uh, confessing. Notice his confessing there. It's not only the sins of Israel, but he says, I was confessing my sins. And uh, he was confessing God's character. And he was praising and thanking God. And then he says, and I was offering up petitions before God. Falling down and imploring God to act. So it's this wonderful variety of ways in which Daniel communicated with God as he was speaking to God. Just for a moment, I want us to settle in on this little phrase where he says, I was confessing my sins. It struck me again to read that phrase 
for a number of reasons. One, Daniel was in his 80s now, his mid-80s. And we get the impression that Daniel had been walking with God for a long time, and he had been walking with God. And you notice, we'll come to it just in a couple moments, where he says, uh, the angel says to him, you are treasured by God. And it seemed to me, well, is there a disconnect here? I'm confessing my sins, and yet I'm treasured by God. And what I think is important for us to understand is that confession of sins is not a one-time act. It's not something we do the moment we recognize our need for Christ and come to Him and we confess our sins. Rather, confession of sins is an ongoing part of our sanctification before God. It's an ongoing realization that this side of heaven, we continue to get dirty. We continue to need to be washed. We continue to need to have Christ to forgive us of our sins. Even if we're 80 years old and been walking with God, even if we're 80 years old and have been called treasured by God, there is a place for confession in our praying. And so this is beautiful description of prayer, this natural description of Daniel just conversing with the Lord. The second thing that we see as we unpack this a little bit is Gabriel came, or Gabriel came in answer to Daniel's prayer. I don't know if you caught it as the scripture was being prayed, but the response to Daniel's prayer was an immediate one. He says, while I was praying, Gabriel came to me in my extreme weariness. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it to you. There's a lot of things that I don't yet know about prayer. And I'm still wrestling in prayer as I walk with God on my own. One thing I am absolutely convinced of is this, is that God hears our prayers immediately. There's not a time delay. There's not some kind of uh, thing that happens when we pray and God may or may not hear or listen to our prayers. God hears our prayers immediately. I don't know how it could be anywhere else. God is the one who has made us. He's made this world and everything in it. He is our creator. I don't know how he could not but hear our prayers immediately or the moment we articulate them before him. What I understand, though, is God's prayer does not always come to us immediately or answer. Here it is. He says, while I was praying, Gabriel came and gave me an answer. But we'll see in chapter 10 that it says it was 21 days. And then the angel finally came with the answer. So I know that God hears your prayer the moment you pray it. What I don't know is when God will answer your prayer. So be encouraged as we pray that God hears our prayers. The second thing that I was thinking of in this uh, prayer as Gabriel comes to him is that the time of his prayer I don't know if you caught that reference about the time of his prayer it says Gabriel came to me about the time of the evening sacrifice that's a remarkable little note that Daniel has included here this is a reference to the evening sacrifice of the worship of God's people but that sacrifice had ceased to exist 50 years ago and in fact, the last time Daniel had actually participated in an evening sacrifice would have been before he was taken captive more than 70 years ago. And so how is he, how is it that as he's talking to God, he says, I was praying to God at the time of the evening sacrifice. It's an amazing little comment because it's telling us that even though Daniel lived in Babylon... His heart and his life was regulated by Jerusalem. 
And it's that phrase that we used last week a little bit. This is another indication of what it means for you and I to live in Babylon, but to live for Jerusalem. He had the city of God on his heart. He had the city of God on his mind. He had God's ways regulating his, his timetable, so to speak. And I wondered to myself, do our habits reflect the city we live in or the city we live for? You see, Daniel had not been overtaken by Babylon and he'd not been overtaken by the fact that he didn't have the sacrifices. He still was regulated by the evening sacrifice, three o'clock in the afternoon, even though he didn't literally practice those sacrifices. And I wondered to myself, how often when we're not at church on the Lord's Day, do the things of the Lord's Day still influence us or still impact us? I, I know it's different for me just because of the nature of my calling and my, my habit and my schedule, but there is not a holiday that I take when Sunday comes along and I don't think, oh, it's 9 o'clock. Barry's going to be preaching in a couple minutes. Or, oh, it's 6 o'clock. Oh, yeah, this is the week that uh, to Ian's going to be preaching and God's people are going to be gathering. And no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, my, that's just where my mind goes. I know that's not true for all of us, but I think all of our lives should somehow be regulated by spiritual realities more than they're res re regulated by temporal realities. And so here we have this just fascinating little com comment inserted. The angel came to him at the time of the evening sacrifice. It says that Gabriel came to him, secondly, to give him understanding in verse 22. And you think, well, what was there for Daniel to understand? Presumably, I think what follows in verses 24 to 27 are what Daniel needs to understand. That Daniel's prayer had focused on the end of the 70 years. It had been kind of a narrow time frame. It had kind of been a limited horizon. But now, all of a sudden, he's, 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 he's thinking about uh, things that are much broader than this. And God wants to give him understanding of what will happen beyond the 70 years of captivity when God will answer his word. And so the angel just came to give him understanding. And that's what God says to us as we pray to him and seek him for wisdom, that he will give us wisdom. Thirdly, Gabriel came to him with considerable encouragement. Verse 23 is just, it's got that little phrase in it, so it's used a couple times more in Daniel. Your versions may have it differently, but the angel comes to Daniel in verse 23. Uh, and he uses this phrase to him. He says, Therefore, consider, or, or, or at the beginning of your pleas and mercy, the word went out, and I have come to tell you it, for you are greatly loved. There's another uh, uh, translation that says, You are treasured by God. Those words are stunning. Let your imagination just run for a couple seconds. Treasured by God. Greatly loved by God. What do you think Daniel must have felt as he heard that exclamation of the angel to him, that articulation of God's love and concern for him? I, I'm sure that part of uh, Daniel's heart just kind of skipped a beat as he thought about his relationship with God and that, wow, really? The God who has just been controlling all of these empires and these kings. He loves me. 
I wonder if Daniel was loved in heaven because he lived for God on earth. A couple places, one in the Old and one in the New Testament says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high place and the holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly heart, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And then you jump ahead to the New Testament and it says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. It seems to be that Daniel was just a man who was humble before God, who walked in obedience to God, and God articulated his love for him by saying, you are treasured and you are loved. How often do we read in the New Testament that little phrase, beloved? It's a beautiful word. It's a word that applies to God's people. It's a word that expresses God's deep, deep love and concern for us as His children. As you hear that kind of word as you read it in Scripture, even as I use it from time to time and just address you as beloved, I, I hope somehow that just warms your heart a little bit to know that that's how God views you as the beloved. So what's the gist of Daniel 20 to 23? It's something like this. Confession never loses a place of prominence in our praying. God's priorities never will fail to impact our thinking. And God's love for us never, never fails to leave us lost in wonder and awe. Let those verses just settle in your hearts and minds this week. And then we come to God's answer in the future. The 70 weeks. Verses 24 to 27. These verses are admittedly, some of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. It's a passage that's almost universally admitted to be one of the most mysterious in all the Bible. One very helpful Old Testament scholar um, records or accounts uh, a time when he was asked to give a lecture on these verses. And the title of his lecture was, 70 Weeks and 20 Problems. I don't think I've resolved many of the 20 problems posed in these verses. I do have some leanings, some of which may come out in the next couple moments. But when it comes to a fairly small passage of Scripture, three verses, that is universally considered to be one of the most difficult and mysterious, that raises more questions than it seems to answer, and is nowhere referenced explicitly in the New Testament, we need to be very careful in being dogmatic about how we understand these verses. I suspect that Daniel was reading fairly broadly as he was reading in Jeremiah, and you remember that the context of these verses is the prayer of Daniel. As he's talking to God about the 70 weeks or 70 years that would come to an end after Babylon had fallen. I can't help but think that uh, as Daniel was burdened by the people's sins and he was burdened by their ongoing rebellion, he was burdened by the fact that even though God spoke to them, they continued to reject him. And as Daniel was reading in Jeremiah, he came across Jeremiah 33, 1-33 as well. 
And I wonder if some of that impacted this, these verses that we have here. Jeremiah writes in those verses, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day they, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I wonder if Daniel is getting a small glimpse of that new covenant being written on the hearts of his people. See, God's response to Daniel was not only about the coming return of Israel to Jerusalem, his response to him was about the ultimate transformation and restoration that God would accomplish in the lives of his people, establishing his new covenant in them, making them to the point where they would be forgiven of their sins, sin would be ripped from them, and they would no longer rebel against God. In fact, that's what we celebrate when we gather around the Lord's table. This is what? The new covenant in my blood. Christ has accomplished for us what we were unable to to accomplish for ourselves. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Uh, this prophecy, first of all, is for the people of God. And I think that helps us as we try and work our way around it. That's the focus. And our eyes are now moving off the world scene of kingdoms and kings and of all this going on and zeroing in on what God's plan is for the people of God in His city. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed. What are these 70 weeks? Well, some, or most agree that these are years. But that's about where the agreement ends. Are these literal weeks? Are they figurative years? Are they sequential, or are there gaps in them? Are we intended to see three groups, or just two groups? You see, it's not as easy as one might think to say, well, that's exactly what it means. Well, how do you know that? All I know is that the 70 weeks are going to be fulfilled when those six things written in verse 24 are accomplished. See, Daniel's vision had been fairly narrow, a short-sighted one. God is going to now take him to a higher mountain and give him a considerably extended vision. Initially, as I said, Daniel was concerned with the restoration of the temple, but God is concerned with the restoration of his people. And God was showing him that there was a day coming when sin would be totally and completely erased. So again, how do we unpack these verses? Four ways that I summarize it. First of all, a time when hope is realized. Daniel 9, 24. How can you read those verses and not be thrilled in your heart? This is what God is going to accomplish in the course of these 70 weeks. And the, the scope of the hope that God gives Daniel is absolutely breathtaking. At the end of these 70 weeks, um, he will finish transgression. He will put an end to sin. He will atone for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will seal both vision and prophet. He will anoint a most holy place. That's what will be accomplished in that 70-week period, whether it's literal or figurative. The first three of those are negative, and they deal with the concern of Daniel's prayer, which is the sin of God's people. 
And God has provided in here a way of forgiving sin without being untrue to his righteousness. And then the last three are more positive, and they point to God's fulfillment of his own righteous purposes. In this verse, we see there a summary of the work of Christ. It's almost impossible for a new Christian or a New Testament Christian to look back on verse 20, 24 and not see the cross. So there's a sense in which these verses um, are completed at the cross. But there's also a sense in which these verses will not fully be realized until Christ returns at the end of the age. And so we begin to see something of the possible scope of these verses. But the very least is, aren't they full of encouragement? Aren't these verses full of hope? Aren't these verses something that should thrill our hearts, those of us who wrestle with our own sin, those of us who wrestle with our own transgression, those of us who wrestle with the impact of sin in the world, to know that there's coming a day where it will be totally dealt with, that it's already been dealt with by Christ on the cross, but the full ramifications of his work will one day finally and fully be realized. There's a message of hope, I think, in verse 24. It's not unlike Romans chapter 8, verses 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, Daniel had been filled with hope of, 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 of the, the, the total eradication of sin. But he knew that that hope was not yet fully realized. And so it's like God is saying us here, there will come a day when your hope will be realized. And that, beloved, is an incredible encouragement to you and I. Well, the end of the 70 years of exile were coming to a close. The people now were going to face 70 years. The end of the exile would not be the final end. There was still a long time of waiting. It was as if, it, it's as if God was saying, now this is what I'm going to do, but not right away. So hunker down, settle in for a long faithfulness towards your final hope. We have the end in sight. Now we just trudge along faithful to God until it's fully realized. The second uh, aspect of this is the first part of verse 25. And it's simply, for me, I put a little title there, a time when hope returns. The prophecy there is that they're going to go back and they're going to rebuild the, the city. They're going to rebuild it. The, uh, the, from Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the uh, anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. It's just a, uh, I think it's a way of saying that it's going to be accomplished. A word has gone forth. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. When you think about this word, though, there's little um, agreement on the word. What word? Is it a word of decree? There's been at least three individual words that have been uh, uh, um, suggested are the fulfillment of this. Others say, well, no, it's a word of prophecy. I don't know which it is, if it's a word of prophecy or if it's a, a historical decree made by a king. 
But what is clear, if we can't pinpoint people and dates, is that the purpose of the first seven weeks is to restore hope. To just be assured that God will fulfill his word to rebuild the city, to rebuild Jerusalem. It was a word to restore and build Jerusalem. The city would not remain desolate. God would intervene for his glory. And so the first seven weeks is just speaking about a rebuilding stage when God would rebuild his city. The second part of verse 25, I think, describes a time when life goes on. You'll see what I mean in a moment. It says the city will be built, the restoration will be accomplished, but in a troubled time. And it's a reference to the next 62 weeks now, which, which, which is a distinct unit from the first seven weeks. And we wrestle with the issues that are raised in verse 25 with the, with the word and the people and the names and what's actually going to take on. But as we do that, it would be very easy to miss the significant note of assurance giving in this verse. And the assurance given by God is that over the 62 weeks, he will accomplish his purposes. But it will not all be roses. It will be accomplished through praying and difficulty. Do you notice that where it says that? It says, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. I love the note of assurance that it will be built. I'm not at all warmed by the prospect of the pain. The good news in this section is that God is at work fulfilling his word. The bad news is that God's time scale is different than ours. And so we have a city being rebuilt, and we have presumably people living in that city, and yet they're going to live there through difficult and troubled times. Even though the days will be difficult, though, the people will have a home. God's hand will be upon them. And it might not seem, or it might not seem like it's to the people who are living there and who are living through it, but we still need to know that God offers them hope here, and that His will will be accomplished even through difficult times. It reminds me very much of the unseen providential work of God in our lives. And just as God is working on this city and it will be built through troubled times, it's the same way of God at work in your life and my life. That our lives are being rebuilt, but through difficult, troubled times. One commentator described a scene from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It takes place in the interpreter's house where Christian is shown a fire that's burning on a grate. One was in front of this fire and is heaving water onto it, and yet for all that heaving of water onto it, the fire just seemed to burn brighter and hotter. The interpreter in, uh, indicated that the fire represented the work of grace in the believer's heart, and the baptizer in that case was the devil doing all he could to extinguish it. But then the interpreter takes Christian behind the wall and there was a man with a vessel of oil that he was continuing to throw on the fire. And he said, this is Christ who continually with the oil of grace maintains the work that he's already begun in the heart. And he is behind the wall doing his work secretly and hiddenly. It's a beautiful picture. 
that although what we see looks to be trouble and pain, God is behind the scene working for our good, continuing to bring about progress in our lives. Behind all of these words and these weeks is the mystery of the very real truth that God is behind the scene working for the good of his people. A few weeks back, I had occasion to reflect again again on the amazing hymn of William Cowper. Written out of years of wrestling and darkness. And the hymn is simply titled, God Works in a Mysterious Way. And it's a hymn that describes the way that even though our life might be troubled, even though we live in perilous times, God is behind this working out His mysterious providence. This is what Cowper writes in his hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, though clouds ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the feeble Or judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I know we're talking about the people of God that Daniel is referring to. But the people of God are made up of individuals just like you and I. And I couldn't help but think about the work that God is doing in each of the lives of those who have put their faith and trust in Him. Making us new, restoring us, but in troubling times. Do you feel the battle? Do you feel the war raging in your soul? Are you aware of the promise that we've referred to, I don't know why, for the last two weeks, and this is the third week, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You see, we live in an instant world. Our whole world around us just wants things quicker and faster. And the world leaks into our relationship with God. And we want instant sanctification. Uh, More more than that, we seem to want it for others than ourselves, but we want instant change. We want instant perfection. But we need to hear this word that God speaks to Daniel about his purposes for his people, that God will accomplish his work, but in troubled and distressing times. We need to be patient with others as they wrestle with their growth in sanctification. As we realize, well, I've conquered that. Why can't you conquer that? And we need to realize that, well, maybe they're wrestling with something we've already conquered. We've got more stuff that we're wrestling through and battling through that we still haven't beaten. And this process of sanctification and restoration and rebuilding of our lives takes place in troubling times. I don't know the details of Daniel 25 in my head, but I know the big picture, the forest, and that is God will accomplish his task of bringing them to a restored city, but through difficulty. And the final 
verses, verses 26 and 27. A time when clouds gather. These are incredibly difficult verses. There are significant questions about the interpretation of them. And unfortunately, I'm going to leave you to wrestle with that. What is clear is it seems that it's going to be a time of wars and rumors of war. That as this 70 weeks draws to a conclusion and comes closer and closer, that it's going to be a significant time of battling. And what is clear, though, from these verses, and this is what I want us to focus on, is that God wins. It's right there in black and white. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The decreed end. The final word and the final picture is that of a predetermined end. The final picture is of one of the enemy of God and the enemy of his people seeking to impose on them idolatrous worship until he meets the end that God has decreed for him. The final ruler, it seems, raises his ugly head against God until his time runs out and then it's all over. You see, we wrestle with the evil all around us. We wrestle with, with the way that people perpetuate evil around us. We wrestle with the fact that sometimes there are tyrants in places of authority. And yet we should always have in the back of our mind this assurance that God has decreed their end. God is working out his purposes. The time has already been set for the last tyrant who would assault God's kingdom and crush his people to be terminated. There's no question in mind. There's no hesitation in God's plan. The end has been determined for the final abominator. Do we have confidence in God's decrees as we walk in these difficult times. I was drawn to an article of an event that took place back in February the 20th, 2008. The Aegis-class cruiser Lake Erie was out in the oceans off Hawaii, and it was heaving and pitching and rolling in terrible seas. It had been sent on a mission to destroy a disabled U.S. satellite that was about to enter Earth's orbit. The satellite was about the size of a bus, and it was carrying 1,000 pounds of toxic, or of toxic hydra, hydrazine. And it had a minor chance of coming through the atmosphere and landing on a population center. The satellite had been disabled, it was 150 miles up in space. It was traveling at 17,000 miles per hour. That's about five times faster than a speeding bullet, about 20 times the speed of sound. And the firing window of this destroyer, this cruiser, was about 30 seconds. The story tells how the cruiser scored a direct hit with an SM-3 missile. The time was precise, the shot was accurate, and the destruction was complete. This wasn't a random shot, however. It was the result of significant calculations and preparations that had been made ahead of time. And in just the same way, God has made precise calculations for the destruction of the desolator that will come 
at the end of these 70 weeks. So to summarize then, the overall reality of these verses, at least for me, is one of hope fulfilled. It's as if God is saying, now this is what I am going to do, but not right away. So hunker down, settle into a long faithfulness towards your final hope. You will be sustained even in distressing times. And the great hater of God's people sits in the Lord's crosshairs with a date of his demise clearly marked on God's calendar. God was merciful to Daniel and gave him a view of his dealings with his people that uh, encompassed so much more than simply the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem. Most significantly, in my mind's eye, it seems as though Daniel saw in the distance the shadow of the cross where Messiah would die and accomplish fully and completely all of God's purposes. Just maybe there is more to the fact that this prophecy came to him at the time of the evening sacrifice. May God help us as we wrestle with this text. Father, I thank you for our time in this passage. I hope that one or two things have landed on the hearts of your people this morning. As we leave here today, we certainly don't have necessarily any more answers that give us insight into some of the specifics that are mentioned, but I hope we have been able to glimpse a bit of the forest for the trees. I thank you, Father, that we live in a different age than Daniel. We have lived now through the completion of your work of redemption through Jesus Christ. We're just waiting for the final end of that when he returns, and we can look back on this prophecy and we can say, of course, of course. The 70 weeks is about Christ and about his final reign and rule. So help us as we wrestle through this. Help us to see Christ at this Christmas time, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.